that minus 300 you said that line stinks it's not even tw- it's not even 24 hours right now we're recording this until the draft and it's minus 300 do you trust minus 300 here Welcome to Props and Hops, a betting and beer podcast powered by Dimers.com. I'm your host, Matt Landis, and in this episode, we put the finishing touches on the 2022 NFL Draft Portfolio with special guest Kiev O'Neill. Some of you may already know Kiev as the host of the Odds Breakers podcast, which I was fortunate to join last week, and in this conversation on Props and Hops, We discuss NFL draft betting in our final few hours before the Jags go on the clock in Las Vegas. And if you're catching this conversation after round one of the draft, stay tuned. We also talk college football and UFC betting with Kiev as those are a couple of his specialties. And to bring in the hops, we also break down our Mount Rushmore in the world of beer. One housekeeping note before we cut to the conversation. If you'd be interested in connecting with a community of like-minded bettors, Go ahead and check out the Dimers Discord channel. It's now at more than 2,300 members and counting. You can find a link to join for yourself in these show notes. And now, enjoy this week's conversation with the man behind the odds breakers, Kiev O'Neill. Kiev O'Neill, the home and home, comes full circle after I joined you on the Oddsbreakers podcast last week. Happy to return the favor and bring you on here. Welcome to Props and Hops. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. And hey, happy to be here. I'm a big fan of Props and Hops, fan of you, all your shows. We have a lot of great mutual friends, and we're getting to know each other a little bit better. So honored to be on this show, Matt. Well, it's a blast to have you on, and there's plenty of good stuff we can get into. But right off the top, for any listeners here who might not already be following you or have a lot of familiarity with your work, I'd love it if we could kick it off with a little bit of your background as a better. Absolutely. So, you know, we all made bets as kids, obviously, against each other. And I don't even think that's, like, what got me going. It was really... Back in 1999, I think it was, and I was a young kid, well, maybe barely an adult, uh, I filled out my first bracket, and I'll tell you, I didn't know what it was. It came from a newspaper. It might have been like the USA Today or something like that, and I ended up doing really good. It was the year Rip Hamilton won the uh, championship with UConn. I had UConn winning it all. A lot of people were on other teams. Maybe it was Duke or something like that, and I really, I mean, killed it, that, that tournament. I mean, I, I think I probably maybe had eight or nine games wrong, something crazy good, and I was like, wow, that's fun, you know? And then so I was big into filling out brackets. And then, you know, kind of when the Internet started building up a little bit, maybe maybe I was on MySpace or something, you know, um, I, I noticed that you can start betting on games. And I'm like, well, that's fun. I always feel like I'm smarter than everybody. And then uh, <laughs> uh, I probably wasn't, but um, I started betting on Sportsbook.com. I mean, this is long before it was Sportsbook AG and um, a couple other sites. Uh, Bodog was one of them. And. You know, they eventually became Bovada, but 
Um, you know, I just started opening some accounts and putting five, $10 bets. And I think the first year I did really good. I was great for some reason. And then uh, I thought I was an awesome sports better than the next couple of years I lost. <laughs> it's just kind of, you know, what's going on? What's what I go? I, you know, you overfit. I, I, that first year, for some reason, I feel like um, you, you just have some sort of crazy momentum behind you. And the way you think is a little bit different. And then and then things start bugging you a little bit. Maybe that's what it was. And it wasn't using power ratings or anything like that. And I was losing, but I still enjoyed betting. You know, I still enjoyed watching games. And then later, you know, I, I just started kind of knocking on people's doors. I spent a lot of time in Vegas with some friends and met people out there and just uh, started listening to shows and podcasts. And, you know, I think Gil Alexander was one of the first ones I listened to off uh, out of Easton. You know, he was uh, early and then banged the book with Adam Burke and, stuff like that, you know, and, and back in the t probably like 2014, 15, 16, I just gathered all this information. I became decent. You know, I, I started making my own power ratings and doing stuff like that. And, you know, going by certain codes, trying to get line value and things like that, Matt, and just best practices that you and I know. And now I like the back of our hand. And then, you know, in 2016, I was like, I want to talk about this stuff. I, I love it. You know, it's like my passion. You know, I was like, I want to express myself. I want to uh, tell people why I do things. And that's when I started theoddsbreakers.com. And um, it was just a podcast in the beginning with a website in the background. And, uh, you know, I, I got in, to be honest with you, before probably 99% of podcasts out there. You know, it's fine. The podcast boom kind of happened in 2019. But... I was still early. I wasn't the earliest, obviously, because I was listening to some podcasts. But what was funny is like I would search for sports betting podcasts. I would get the couple that I just mentioned. And then I would get some dude out of his backyard with his drunk brother talking about betting. It's like, I want more than that. You know, I was like, I'm going to get into this. And uh, I had to fight my wife off for a little while. But eventually I I somehow went out on that one and was able to start the odds breakers. And it just kind of grew. I started knocking on people's doors and asking them if they want to be on. And a podcast was kind of starting to get big and I got some really great guests because of it. Some really big names these days. And uh, we remain friends to this day and it's grown into more of just a podcast. Now a full fledged sports betting website with handicappers there. And it's, I changed the format and the programming to be a very nicely displayed uh, website in like a newspaper type format. So it's just kind of sky's the limit now. And we're just having fun, you know, having a great time and, we have subscribers for people that want to get a little bit deeper with us. I think it's really cool to hear the evolution of a podcast with just a website in the background to more of the full-fledged operation that people know it as today. And one thing that you touched on at the end of that comment that I'd like to dig deeper on, if it's all right, uh, the notion of having subscribers and pick selling, knowing it can be a very polarizing topic in the space. I hear some people all the time talk about that if somebody's respected with their picks, then they're moving the market and followers count get down at that number. Or if they're not respected, then they're not necessarily moving the market. So anything people are paying for those picks is essentially extra vig. And bottom line, some people think if a better is good enough, then they can just bet themselves for a living. So there's no need to sell picks. I know things aren't always that simple, but because those are common talking points, I felt that it might be you know, a valuable exercise right off the top to just dig into that and see, you know, what those kinds of thoughts you've probably had these considerations, you know, on your own end at times over the years, how, how would you respond? How do you process that kind of thought when it comes to pick selling? So that's a great question. And thank you for asking that. Um, pick selling has always been something that 
people contemplate. And to be honest with you, the odds breakers isn't a, just a pick selling place. And some of the handicappers on it sell picks at plenty of great places that we all know about, you know, all the popular ones. And they also are on the odds breakers, whether they are just writing articles, whether they're selling subscriptions. So the way we do it is we are completely fine with people that pick sell. It's like an investment. You buy into somebody, you want a return on investment. Because if you just hold on to cash right now, you're losing money because of the inflation rate. You are just losing money. So you're investing your money and it's just a different way of investing. And if you like sports, why not? So that, that's when it comes to picking a handicapper. But with us, we don't have a place where we're selling picks. My niche is line value. It's always been about line value. So the subscription method means you already pay a subscription because you're a member. And we do other things now. We have Discord channel for that. We give out some merchandise, some uh, Oddsbreaker shirts. We're going to have hats now coming out. You know, so every member is just a, a kind of like a club. When I make a play, I send it out. So maybe the line moves if I make a play, hopefully not. Um, but then it, it goes out immediately. So it's not like sitting there and as a stale package could become, right? And obviously, it, most of the best bettors out there, they're getting the line, the lines and they put their packages out and some of them have to pull some plays because they're on it. Some of them don't even do that, you know, and that's got to be tough on the mind. So the way I kind of look at our website is that we're like, I, I like to think maybe like the athletic of sports betting, not maybe not that big, but we want to be the sports illustrated of sports betting. You know, we want, uh, it's more of a journalist uh, driven site with, with podcasters and videos. We have about four or five other podcasters at the odds breakers and a lot of them are putting out videos. I was I was slow to videos, but I'm I'm quick I'm quickly adapting, Matt. So um, pick selling can be stressful. With us, you support us. We obviously have to be accountable, and we win. I tell people they need to be honest and track their stuff on uh, professional tracking sites, and there's plenty of them. Bad stamp, uh, uh, you know, action does that. There's a lot of places where you can track your stuff professionally, and uh, that's what I recommend to people. Got it. Well, I appreciate the transparency. And when it comes to the type of picks that people are thinking about, top of mind right now, the NFL draft, less than 24 hours from kicking off as we record this. If people are listening after round one, don't worry. We've got plenty of good topics that will age you know, much better than round one of the NFL draft. But for people catching this episode within you know, less than 24 hours of its release, trying to put the finishing touches on the 2022 NFL draft portfolio, I wonder, Kev, if you could give us a bit of an overview of how you approach betting on the NFL draft overall. Well, that's a great question, too. I mean, the funny thing about the NFL draft is I try to approach it like I approach games. I want to be early. You know, I want to I, I want to have line value. You know, I think that's the important thing. It's not different than approaching games. Obviously, you wait longer. I mean, because a lot of these lines have been out for a very long time. But um, I want to put myself into positive EV situations, positive expected value. That's very important for me. Um, and that way I'll have options. You know, if I don't like something anymore, I can go the opposite way. Um, sometimes even though you have line value, you still won't go the opposite way because you really think that, you know, uh, something's going to happen. And we can talk about some of the ways the books is the books try not to get middled and you can kind of see how obvious it is. But, um, 
they don't give you an opportunity right off the bat to do that, but they've gotten burned on a lot of these lines. And the reason that is, is because some of the juice out there isn't even high enough, I think, on this draft. And uh, I try to sift through the BS as much as possible, get to the information is that I at least know early. You know, so uh, no different than my weekly NFL. I want to be first into the market. Love it. And something that I think about with the draft as well, it can often be difficult for betters to compartmentalize, you know, maybe what you think a team should do versus what in all likelihood a team will do. Those are often not the same thing. I know that you grasped this concept well from your experience over the years. And at the same time, I wanted to check in on something I heard you mention on a recent episode of the Oddsbreakers podcast. You were running through your own mock draft. And I believe the first time I heard Trayvon Walker's name was when you were talking pick seven. And at least by the time I had started to listen to that episode, he had flipped to become the favorite to go number one overall. So when you're going through all this, how much of it is you thinking, okay, what do teams need? What should they do based on how I evaluate these players? And how much of it is, okay, the market's moving in such a way that clearly somebody knows something. Maybe it's time to recalibrate versus when it really is time to just dig in your heels and and trust what you've got on your own. You know, that that's a great question. My mock draft when I recorded it was Friday. <laughs> it came out Sunday night, Monday. It, it, I just had a busy weekend. And I was like, maybe I'm going to lose a little bit. To be honest with you, I already heard the Walker news on Friday. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm not sure about it. And this thing's changed a bunch of times over the last months. I mean, heck, there was a time that a quarterback was favored, you know, and Sam Howell. I mean, I mean then Kavion Thibodeau was there forever. You know, it's just... Everything keeps changing, and I'm not even sure if I trust the Walker News, to be honest with you. And it kind of goes back to what we were saying uh, before the show. It's like there's a lot of dif- disinformation that's pur- purposely put out there. And I would like, if I was a GM, I might do that. You know, you saw that with San Francisco. Everyone thought Mac Jones was going out first, and all of a sudden it's Trey Lance, you know, before you know it. So um, I guess what, from what I'm hearing from Jacksonville is that the coach wants an offensive lineman like a Neil or a Kwanu, the GM who supposedly has the most power in this situation, because that's why he's the GM wants Walker or a guy like him. And then maybe the ownerships wants a, a Hutchinson or something like that. That's, that's what I'm hearing, but kind of, if I'm the GM, why would I piss my coach off? It's just the dynamics of this whole thing is just all over the place. So why would I change if, unless I know it? And I am going to do probably a 1.1 or 2.0, whatever you want to call it. Maybe maybe I'll flip this uh, Wednesday night, Thursday morning when it comes out. But the truth is, there's going to be more information coming out. I would not be shocked if this flipped again. So I'm not in a hurry to do it. And uh, uh, we'll see. I- I'm excited to see it. But when I do my mock draft, Matt, I like to say what teams should do because that helps me learn. I look at all the free agency moves. I look at what they need from last year, where they rank EPA pass against the run, things like that. And then I um, do what I think they will do just based upon the GM and their tendencies and the BS that they listen to and all the mock drafts you see that might not even be relevant to this day. Yeah, well, speaking of this day, you know, this pretty much being draft day by the time people are hearing this conversation Right off the top, you've touched on the uncertainty right now. The market indicating that Walker's the guy at one, but that's far from a lock. Also at number two, if it is Walker going first overall, would the Lions want Hutchinson or Thibodeau? What in the world would Houston do at three? It seems like every elite prospect has been, you know, kind of 
thrown their way at one stage or another throughout these past few months. So as we get down to these final few hours, how would you describe your approach when it comes to trying to identify the signal versus the noise and really using draft day as an opportunity to maximize your ROI while also perhaps trying to minimize any distractions with a lot of smoke screens that are inevitably going to be coming up between now and the time the Jags go on the clock? Well, isn't that the magic question? <laughs> I even think the people that are most informed ask that question. You know, it's like, how do you do this? I mean, it's tough, but I tell you right now, apprehensive. I, the only thing that I'm waiting for right now is for second or third for some exact information because I have a lot of the other stuff down pretty well, at least based upon some of the line moves. And, um, you know, I'm excited to see the changes. Um, I hope it's chaos. I'd like to see a lot of trades. It, I think that you try to look at some of the people that really are locked in um, certain teams. Jeremiah is locked into the Jets, right? And the Ravens. And there's other beat writers that are locked into different teams. I, what, here's what's funny about Walker. And you say far from a lock. What's he minus 190 or minus 170 to go first or two, maybe 225 or something on some of the books. And maybe that changed since I looked uh, around noon today. But Trevor Lawrence was minus 10,000 at this time. <laughs> I mean, that's a lock. Minus 10,000 is a lock. Minus 200 is not a lock. So, um, yeah, that shows you that the books aren't sure, but they're, they're, they're taking some bets and, uh, Maybe it's good for them. I don't know, because they probably took a lot of Kayvon uh, Thibodeau bets and some other bets earlier. Yeah, I'm seeing Walker right now, minus 300. So 75% probability implied by that number uh, if we're not factoring in all the big. So true odds, probably a little less than 75%. And, you know, that's closer to a lock than when it was minus 190 or minus 200. But still, to your point, a far cry from where Trevor Lawrence was last year. So a lot of information still to come. Uh, this I feel like every draft cycle people talk about there being more uncertainty than ever before. But really, in a year without an elite quarterback or any any real clarity about even, you know, something as high level as the top one, two or three picks. Uh, I think we're in for perhaps, you know, a little bit more of a wild ride here. And as we hit the home stretch, I'd love to go through the thought exercise of, you know, looking back a bit at your portfolio to this point, but trying to spin it in a forward looking way, not necessarily just talking about the picks or, you know, using it as a chance to discuss numbers that might be long gone, but to dig into the process behind some of these bets so that people can take away insight that they can apply moving forward, whether that's something else that might pop up on this year's draft board or in drafts to come in future years. And I kind of view this in three stages. Uh, one, you know, the best one or two bets that you've made so far. And then on the flip side, when we're trying to take an early lead on some numbers, it doesn't always come up aces. So maybe some of the worst bets you've made to this point and just being able to, you know, tying back to the spirit of transparency and just speaking to that. It's okay. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll share some that I wish I could take back as well, if you'd like. Uh, and then so best bets, worst bets so far, and then maybe anything in the sites. I know it's these final few hours, but there is still some opportunity out there for the astute better. So if we think about it in those three chapters, I guess the first one being best bets in your portfolio so far, what would you identify for that classification? And more importantly, how would you describe the process behind those bets and why you consider them to be among your best thus far? 
And that's a great question. And, and I like how you asked that because I love transparency. I think we should talk about our worst bets as well, man. I think that's great. Uh, quickly before we get into that, that minus 300, you said, that line stinks. It's not even tw- it's not even 24 hours right now we're recording this until the draft, and it's minus 300. Do you trust minus 300 here? It, it, it's far from a lock from what you were saying for, uh, for Walker. So just wanted to throw that in. But that's a great question, which you asked me about um, my best bets. I guess the best bets would have to be where the lines move the most in my favor, right? And uh, and obviously they still could be wrong. I mean, we're, this is still somewhat of a guessing game, but you know, Kayvon Thibodeau, when someone, I can't remember which beat writer, or which uh, draft analyst smashed him, but he went down and he went down far. And I was kind of scratching my head. I'm like, why? I mean, he's, he still had a good year. He still has the measurables. Hell, his combine looked great. I mean, throwing, he still runs fast. He's still a beast. So I've seen him at five and a half on the under at plus 100, plus 120 in a few books too. But I was like, how am I not going to take this? I just don't see how three edge rushers are get, not going to get off the board here. And Kayvon Thibodeau is still Kayvon Thibodeau. He's a safe play. The Jets need him. You know, Houston could use him, sure. But pick number one and two with Jacksonville and Detroit – uh, they, they almost felt like a lock. And, it, it, and obviously we never use that term and it's a terrible term to use, but it's just like, how is Cape on to, so I'm thinking to myself, geez, I think there's some value here at the five and a half. And now it's under 4.5 at minus 165. So that's almost like my, I, I'm looking in cave on Thibodeau to go in the top five is minus 700. So that tells me, I think I have a little value on this one. So I feel good about it right now. I mean, obviously crazier things have happened, but um, one of the, I guess I would have to count that as one of the best bets. So that's my thought process behind it. Now, um, obviously, your best bets are also going to be the ones that um, have a yes or no. You know, it's five and a half is perfect. There's, there's no pushing on that one. You know, it's a, it's a yes or no answer. So um, I like to think of that as more, more of a solid situation is what I like to say. I bet Lewis seen after we talked uh, last week and I bet him under 34 and a half and uh, uh, he's down now to 30.5. So I got to think that I, I did pretty well on him. The way I looked at it is how Hamilton dropped a little bit. And I figured myself a Georgia safety, great numbers, runs a 4.37406.2. How do you miss out on this guy? And um, there is some teams that need safety help. And this kind of correlates to your great play of over one and a half that is now massively juiced. I think it's past the minus 300 now in many books because we discussed that last week. So I think it correlates well with that. And so I think that's another good bet that I made. Um, Chris Olave under 17 and a half. um, I laid minus 120. It is now 16 and a half minus 205. That's a good bet just because all the receivers that are needed in the teens area so I'm really liking that one right now. That's one shining a little bit. Now, notice what the books did on this too. And this is kind of a learning experience. Notice how instead of the books going to like 15 and a half uh, minus 130 or 14 and a half plus 100, notice how they do 16 and a half minus 205. Well, they don't want people coming back on this one, right? They don't want people with positive EV coming back in this situation. So they're protecting themselves. They would rather just have people lay juice in this situation. That's a smart thing for books to do because books can really screw themselves on middle. So that's why you're seeing a lot of that, the next step down with a lot more juice rather than a full cycle down 
where it's closer to minus 110 plus 100 or something like that. A um, couple others, Daxton Hill, 29 and a half, down 28.5. I bet that under a while ago. He can play uh, safety or uh, nickel corner. Um, the one I gave out that was the non-binary one, the plus 175 on the Bills is now plus 150. So, hey, you know, to, to draft a defensive back, I'm still a little bit, little bit of value there. So I'm happy about that. My running backs under 0.5 moved up a little bit as well. So. Um, I, I hope I described some of my thought process before, uh, for these. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, I, I just think the need for secondary is huge. And, um, I think the need for net running back is very low. And, uh, when, when I see players that don't shine in these positions and teams could wait on them just because there's nobody sticking out running backs and tight ends, that's where I think I use my process to find some of that value, Matt. Yeah, and tell me if this sums it up fairly, I think, of maybe a macro level and a micro level takeaway from the thought process that you outlined here. On a macro level, a lot of this could be understanding where are the strengths of a class and where might that align with what teams need at certain spots, especially early on in a draft before, you know, a team like the Raiders might pick somewhere in the top 10 some years. And if they make, you know, one pick out of left field, that could have a domino effect that kind of, throws everything else sideways but near the top of the draft if we know the strengths of a class and how that can align with team needs mentioned this is a really good class for pass rushers and a lot of teams picking at the top could use some reinforcements there so makes sense looking at a guy like Thibodeau so that's a macro level takeaway and the micro level that could be a complementary piece to that I think you touched on you know just trying to get ahead of line movement and it's not as simple as you know you being omniscient and knowing where the market's going but through experience, it could be knowing, okay, if, if an average better listening to this, you know, hopefully has more than one account. If you've got even three could be, you know, a magic number for somebody who doesn't want to spend too much timeline shopping, but they want to try to get the best of the number where possible without bending over backward. If you've got three books and you know, generally, you know, people talk about all the time, something like, uh, you know, Bookmaker or Chris or Pinnacle or Circa, those are known to be sharp books. And if you can see that you have a book that isn't, considered one of the sharper books and they have a line that has a big discrepancy from what those sharper books are hanging that can just be a way to pick off a bad number you know the logic of sports betting quoting the movie rounders spotting the sucker it's often not about knowing what you want to bet and then going to find the odds it can be hey i'm just going to check the odds look for the bad line and there's my bet so at a micro level shopping lines at a macro level pairing that line shopping with just a sense of where a class might be strong in a given year and how that might align with what teams need at the top of the draft. Is that a fair way to summarize a lot of the thought process behind the best bets that you've made thus far? It's a very fair way to do it. And if you want to go even deeper, the offshores tend to mimic each other more and the fan duels, MGMs, DraftKings, they, they mimic each other more. So I, I noticed a difference, a, dis, a massive difference between the offshores in a in general, kind of ball them up here, and the legal books in America right here. So you can take plus. Usually you're going to find your discrepancies going from uh, A to B, not within the A or not within the B. You're going to find it on the opposite side. So all money pays the same. I don't care if I get back a Bitcoin. You know, it doesn't matter to me. I, I trade that stuff quickly. So um, yeah, that's the best way to look at it. I think you could have as many outs as possible from as many different geographic areas. You're going to be a lot more successful. So great Absolutely. way to look at it for sure. Macro, macro way is a great way to describing the draft and how I made my assessments. 
Got it. Well, you mentioned, you know, kind of diversifying the portfolio with, you know, a diverse, you know, array of books to shop across. And if we've got diversification, that might also mean some bets are looking really good. Some maybe not looking so good these days. And that's perfectly okay. None of us are batting a thousand. So is there anything that you think you've bet to this point that you'd give back if you could? And more importantly, what the thought might be behind that desire? Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic question. Talk about where I might have some learning experience or learning opportunity here. And what I did with quarterbacks, and I did this really early, it was maybe February, March, where I bet the three quarterbacks, small amounts, almost maybe up to one bet, you could even count it, maybe up to a unit or a unit and a half. I bet them all about 60 to one-ish to be the first pick of the draft. And I was like, this is great because nobody sticks out to me as Ed's rusher. You know, Kavion Tibio just dropped. You know, I'm thinking to myself, there's going to be a team reaching for Kenny Pickett. There's going to be a team maybe reaching for um, – uh, like a Matt Corral or somebody like that, you know, or the uh, Liberty kid, uh, Malik Willis. But apparently the market was tough on them and it was all coming from a lot of the draft analysts. And to be honest with you, a lot of the GMs, it, it's like a, uh, almost like that, how rumors start, you know, somebody says something then it spreads and it spreads and it spreads. Maybe, the, maybe they're completely off on something, but the GMs start following this stuff too. So you have to understand that they are prone to make mistakes just because of the Mel Kuypers of the world that, you know, the Todd McShays, you know, that starts this kind of stuff. Um, so whether they're right or wrong, to be completely honest with you, it's a guessing game. And I couldn't really rate these quarterbacks high either. Personally, I tried. I am a contrarian. I, I, I tried to find I, I tried to find a lot of value in them myself, but I was wrong. So at, to this point, a quarterback is still not number one. Now, here's my process on that. I look at the last four drafts. All the first picks were quarterbacks. I look at the last seven. Six of the last seven were all quarterbacks. You know, so I'm like, I'm going to get 20 to one here, you know, on these three 60 to one bets, right? I'm going to get 20 to one on a quarterback coming in. And I, I, I was wrong, apparently, unless something crazy happens. Maybe, maybe Jacksonville's being quiet and maybe somebody is going to reach for somebody. I highly doubt it now. But that's a bet I probably could take back um, if I could. But if it does happen, I'll be like, holy cow. <laughs> uh, this class, it, it, the quarterbacks have been hammered so hard. Uh, I don't think I don't think they will. I have one more if you want a quick comment on that. Absolutely. So here's another one I made. And I made it last week. And it moved away from me. Jameson Williams, I bet over 12 and a half. And the thought process behind it is, yeah, he could be the best receiver. I did see him look great in the playoffs until he tore his ACL. And um, but that was the whole thing. I was like, well, he tore his ACL. He must he must be six four like DK Metcalf, right? I checked. No, he's six one. He's the size of the other receivers. You know, the size of Olave. Right? I'm like, okay, well, he. What about his forty? Well, he couldn't run his forty, but at the same time, he's he's the one that left Ohio State for Alabama because of Wilson and Olave. You know, it's like he's the guy that almost got kicked up. So what, what, why would they reach for a guy that can't play until October because he's got the Alabama in front of him maybe, but still you think to yourself, the top 12 GMs well, that are top 12 in the draft, usually most of them are in the hot seat because 
they're in the top 12 of the draft. So it's not like their team has been killing it. So you think that why would they make a mistake by drafting a guy with an injury that we don't know how it's going to heal? You know, look at look at what the Bears did with Kevin White. You know, I mean, it, it, this happens and then it heals bad. But chances are the kid's going to heal great and maybe he's going to be great. But this ain't 6'4 DK Metcalf, who wasn't drafted in the first round for some crazy reason. This ain't Tyree Kill's 429 or 43 speed. I don't remember exactly what he had. This is just a, a guy in the mix. And so I was like, why the heck is this line going from 12 and a half to 11 and a half? I can't figure it out. Maybe the Jets are going to make a big mistake on him because the Jets make a lot of mistakes. But um, I, I, I'd still be really shocked if somebody took a reach for him under the 12, Matt. So that's my other one. I think that's a good illustration of where this can be so much more an art than a science at times, because you're looking at a number and wondering how in the world it can make sense. Sometimes that's a signal that you're on to a phenomenal bet. And sometimes <laughs> it's a signal that you need to take a step back and be very careful before submitting any wagers because somebody might know something you don't. So okay. it can be really tricky. And some of these, you know, limbs that will go out on age great. And some of them, you know, not so much. That's okay. As you talked about the top 12, I went and looked. Uh, yeah, we know the Jets and Giants both picking multiple times there. And even the Texans at 13, we, we essentially have, you know, three teams doubling up in the top 13 picks. So maybe not as many different GMs involved in this equation as there would typically be if you're looking at an over-under of 12 and a half. And then teams, you know, that are picking multiple times have, have gone through some rocky times in recent years. And that means, you know, we've got new regimes for teams like Houston, like the Giants. So there's also that much less of a track record of what these guys are going to do. It's not like we know, okay, this GM tends to draft this way. It's like, all right, it's a blank slate for somebody. So we're not sure. And by the way, if we look back to guys like DK Metcalf or Tyreek Hill that you've mentioned, in recent years, I mean, as evidenced by what's been going on in recent days with wide receivers looking to be traded, looking to get paid. Um, I know you have your own thoughts as to the value of the wide receiver position. And uh, spoiler alert, you're not as bullish on wide receiver being, you know, something <laughs> that moves the needle as much as a lot of people might be. But maybe this is the kind of year where if other teams see the writing on the wall, all right, I'm going to need to try to get a good receiver in the first round for, you know, that extra year on the contract versus a second round pick like DK Metcalf was because right now the way the game has become, you know, even more pass friendly and the way that wide receivers are demanding so much more in the market, uh, you know, maybe that's just something that we don't have any way of quantifying in a model and there's not a clear track record of it, but maybe that's why some people are betting the other way. It's hard to say, but I just feel the pain of thinking that you can make sense of a situation and justify a bet that then still sees the market move against you. That's exactly it too. It's um, I, I can't figure it out because I have my own prejudices, you know, and to be honest with you, it, the Jets, they picked two receivers in the second round the last two years, Elijah Moore and, and Mims, you know, it's just like you're going to do it again this early. It's just kind of duh. Yeah. And I think about that and I could be wrong. Cause like you said, uh, you know, teams need and Mims didn't turn out good. And, um, obviously Houston might want to test out mills with a quarterback, but then I kind of come back to my old point. He's not shining. He's not showing me he's better than Olave. You know, he's not showing me he's better than, um, the guy from USC, right? It's just, 
it, it still comes to my mind where taking a shot on somebody, especially if you're a GM for Houston, where you could be completely ousted right away. Houston, New York Giants, right? Giants did get, thank God, get a new GM this year, but um, it's like they're setting themselves up for failure if they're going to reach for a guy that doesn't heal properly. So I'm still thinking to myself, you know, obviously it's a bad bet right now, but it still could turn out for me, Matt. Yeah, I mean, anything's possible. We've talked about nothing being a lock at this stage. And and I'll just, you know, join with you on and trying to go out on a limb and think you might be onto something and have it blow up in your face, you know, perhaps before the draft even starts. We can hold out some hope on some of these bad butts, but we know when the market does its thing that, you know, that can be quite telling at times. I also not too long ago took a small piece of Trayvon Walker over three and a half. And I like to think that I didn't let it seep into my consciousness that I already had some exposure on him to go first overall. Um, Fortunately, well before he was favored. So again, trying to divorce myself from talking about numbers that are no longer available that does this audience no good, but really think through the thought process. Um, A lot of this, you know, we hear information is king when it comes to the draft. And I, I think it's hard to dispute that with much validity. But it can also be really difficult to find out, you know, which information really matters and sometimes maybe what's speculation versus information. So I thought I might have been really early to see something um, that might come out that could be perhaps a little bit damning for Walker's draft stock. Um, Maybe it didn't have legs to it. Maybe it just didn't come to light. I never even had all the details myself. So I'm just thinking, okay, if this report might be coming about a you know, guy in the mix to go one overall. This draft is tight enough at the top. He's not a head and shoulders number one type of draft pick, even if he does become the Jags pick tomorrow night. Um, You know, if anything happens to his stock to knock it down, he's not going in the top three with the other guys up there. So it was a small piece, but now I feel like I've just diluted the value that I otherwise have on him to go first overall. So I think the thought process is fair. It just, you know, sometimes we get this stuff early, we go out on a limb and it, you know, pays off great. And other times you just have to be willing to accept that when you're taking these chances, there's no sure thing. We've touched on it a few times, but just thought that Thibodeau, uh, or excuse me, Trayvon Walker over three and a half lean that I took not too long ago. Um, you know, clearly I can kiss that goodbye and just keep my fingers crossed that he goes first overall. And sometimes when we're trying to read the tea leaves with information, that's the kind of situation we're going to be left in. Yeah, you kind of set yourself up for a Polish middle is what they say. And um, it, it's, it, what if he goes two or three, you know, and some people uh, will Turn it off the TV at that point. <laughs> it's get, you're, you're hedging a bet, but um, you left yourself a, a, a situation where it could backfire. The good news for you is that you have, you know, a 27, well, 23, 24% chance at least of, uh, I think, him going, you know, it's around the 75. I see minus 320 in some books now. You're, it's You have a shot, but I'll tell you this. I am not changing my Mac or my mock draft until Thursday morning. And if he's still maybe minus 300 in that time, maybe I will put him up there. But I am too stubborn to change it right now because I just think too many things are going to happen. I'm uh, And I, I'm going to hold out. But, hey, you might find out that waiting in that three and a half could be uh, still a good hedge for yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm not holding my breath on it, but I, I will acknowledge that it certainly still is a possibility. And as you touch on the Polish middle, I, I think that's good to keep in mind a lot of people, especially with the draft. You know, sometimes when people look to hedge certain bets to 
you know, lock in what they could perceive to be a guaranteed profit, not all hedges guarantee that at least one option is going to win. In this case, something like Walker to go one overall or Walker over three and a half. You know, there is, in fact, room for 0 and 2 where there's not any space for 2 and 0. So it's something to be mindful of. And uh, not just to defend myself, but to reiterate the process, I was well aware when I bet the over three and a half that I already had one overall in pocket. And the primary goal, I like to think it was nowhere in my mind, but if it was anywhere, it was in the far back of my mind, nowhere near the primary goal to view this as some sort of hedge to minimize my exposure on Walker to go one. At the time I bet Walker to go one, I thought that was a good bet, getting a book that was slow to move its number when the rest of the market started to move in his direction. And at the time I bet him over three and a half, I thought that that was a good bet. So to me, um, I guess I don't consider something really a hedge or, or really give too much weight to the idea of a Polish middle if I think the bets I'm making at the time I make them have standalone value. If there's mm-hmm. life-changing money involved, you know that can be a, a different equation. But in this case, it was really just trying to think, okay, just because I bet Walker a few weeks before that to go one overall doesn't mean that I can't change my mind. In this case, I know at least one of these bets is going to lose. Hopefully only one of them loses and I'll keep my fingers crossed <laughs> selfishly that he goes one overall. But I think a lot of bettors could stand to benefit from, you know, getting away from the thought that anytime you have a plus EV bet, there's an option to hedge and guarantee a profit or, or take the cash out that the book's offering you. They're offering you those kinds of options for a reason, and it's usually serving their interest. So if you can just try to view each bet in a vacuum, uh, to a large extent, I think that's going to lead people to the best ROI over time. Now, if you're viewing each bet in a vacuum and taking you know, you really like 13 players in this draft and you pick them all to go in the top 10 where you're setting yourself up because there's only 10 spots to go around. So you need that bigger picture perspective of your overall exposure. But in most cases, I think people gravitate too much toward looking to hedge to lock in a profit. And sometimes they're not even really hedging to your point about the Polish middle. So yes, keep in mind the overall exposure and and don't stack the deck, you know, too heavily one way where you're left really vulnerable if an unfavorable outcome unfolds. But at the same time, you know, if you think two different bets have standalone value at the time that you make them, even if they seem to contradict each other, that's okay. Some of the best bettors I know have big numbers on Evan Neal to go one overall. It's not going to happen, but it was valuable at a certain point in the past few months. Same with Icky, Hutchinson, Walker. Some people might have gotten good numbers on Thibodeau this past season. And it's not just about trying to build a portfolio where none of the bets can lose. I think it's ultimately trying to view each bet as an opportunity to increase the long-term ROI. And if it looks like that's a good opportunity, then go ahead and take it. And if not, then there's nothing wrong with passing. No, it's that's what it's all about. You know, you made the bet at that point. What we don't know is maybe these top three picks could be traded. You know, I mean, there's just so much stuff that can happen. And uh, you, you, I mean, much bigger percentage right now, in my opinion, just from what the lines are saying, that it either goes one or maybe it does go past three and a half because, Detroit seems to fall, uh, be in love with uh, Aiden Hutchinson, and um, if he's drafted first, I, I don't know if they're going to draft Walker. Or they might have Thibodeau next, and if that's the case, uh, Houston they might be grabbing an offensive lineman there at Neal because you know, that's what they need. They need offensive line. And I I think you still are in good shape. So, and I totally get your explanation of you're doing it because you find value at that time makes total sense to me. All right, so a lot of talk about what's already in our portfolios, but we're not necessarily done yet. Kev, in these final few hours leading up to the first round getting underway, anything else in the sights to perhaps finish off that 2022 NFL draft portfolio? 
you know, it's, it's fun to think about the draft. I made a lot of plays, but I have to remember you should never get overexposed. Um, it's all about bankroll management. If I'm going to make a play right now, unless something really sticks out with a player, I, I am probably going to wait till it's a, a first, second or third pick. It would be one of those. I'd be betting on the walkers or something like that. You know, that would be um, the only type of thing I would consider at this point, because even if somebody says, oh, the draft stock on this guy that's supposed to go number 40 is getting better. That's 40 picks before. I still don't know that for sure. You know, I, I kind of made the the bulk of my plays right now. Um, I think people have to remember bankroll management and have a fun watch in the draft. Don't let something bother you. You know, think crazy things are going to happen, you know, and GMs, um, you know, they, they don't always uh, cooperate with what you think is logical. So it would be the first, second or third pick for me. And uh, we'll see what happens when mock draft 2.0 comes out on Thursday. Looking forward to it. I will just add anybody looking to maximize their draft day return these final few hours Again, information is king and shopping around wherever possible. I know not everybody's got 20 different books, but um, if you can shop around more than one, you're probably going to do yourself some favors. And thinking through just a few examples from today, as we record this again on Wednesday evening, right before draft day, keeping up with the market. Um, I was about to get on a plane today to fly home from a quick vacation to Phoenix with my wife for her birthday and see some family. And... Uh, Quay Walker was just getting steamed downward in a hurry. So I was able to grab him minus 125 to go in the first round when other books were moving toward what now looks to be the settling point of minus 600. Um, sometimes it's not just reading the market, but keeping up with who's saying what. I know that Adam Schefter this afternoon tweeted out something about Drake Jackson being a good candidate to go around one. And he was listed at plus 225 at the time, and that quickly moved to even money. Similarly, Daniel Jeremiah released his final mock draft, and I feel like DJ's final mock every year is the one that I anticipate the most with his credibility and his results over the years. And he had Kair Elam going to my Chargers at 17, and Elam was available to go in the first round at minus 120, and that you know didn't last too long. It's settling out, I think, in the range of minus 250 as we record this. So just a few examples of keeping up with the market where you can, knowing what really influential guys like Adam Schefter might be reporting up via Twitter, keeping up with mock drafts from the few mock drafts that are really worth following. Somebody plugged in like Daniel Jeremiah, you know, and he has somebody going 17 overall and you can get them, you know, without laying too much vig to go in the first round. That can be really valuable. And I wanted to circle back on something you touched on early. Generally, a lot of your best bets having binary outcomes for a player to go in the first round. Those are often one-way markets at sportsbooks. So it doesn't seem like a binary bet but it's essentially betting somebody to go under 32 and a half. Again, we need to be mindful of the fact that there are 32 picks in the first round. So if you bet too many guys, yes, they'll go in the first round. You're probably going to be running out of spots and sweating quite a bit the final few picks. So to your point, not getting overexposed, but just keeping up with information, what the market's saying, what influential people in the space are reporting. Sometimes if you don't even agree with them, you just know a number is going to move. That can put you in an advantageous position, maybe open up some maneuverability. And the last thing I'll say, I noticed when Circa opened up its odds this year, they were only up for a couple of days, but Monday of draft week, 32 player prop over-unders, and they were taking $1,000. Once they took real bets on some of these props, a lot of even the offshores increased their limits as well. So there were places I, I know a lot of people would talk about, 
hey, there were good numbers available shortly after the Super Bowl, but I could only get down $25 or $50. Uh, you know, a lot of those limits now are several times higher. And yes, the market's more efficient. So the numbers that were really good a couple months ago might not be as good now, but there could still be some good numbers, maybe worth revisiting. You know, if you max out what you could bet a few weeks ago, they might take, you know, a little bit more of your action as the draft gets closer. So just some final food for thought as far as the draft goes. Kiv, any final thoughts or do you want to talk a little bit of college football as well? Hey, man, I'm always into talking college football. You know, I will say that Daniel Jeremiah did move a lot of lines with that mock draft, and he's a highly trusted one. But you also have to realize some of the stuff that he says. We don't know if he goes even earlier, you know. So the unders, (laughs) you know, sometimes when he releases something, it moves information, and GMs see that stuff too, and they're like, well, maybe, maybe, you know. Yeah, the Packers taking him. Maybe we should take a look at him. He's not going to fall to us in a second. Maybe we should take a serious look at him um, earlier, you know, possibly somebody like the Patriots or somebody like that. So that always could happen as well. So good points. Okay, so we've got a lot of ground covered on the NFL draft. And for people hearing this conversation after round one is in the books, still plenty of value to extract from your expertise, Kiv. I'd like to touch on college football particularly your specialty in the Big Ten. Um, how did that come into play? And, and I guess just off the top, why did you end up settling in on the Big Ten to focus your efforts? Well, uh, great question. And I always preach conference specialization, especially in college basketball, because if you can focus on a smaller conference, let's say you went to Lipscomb or something, then uh, you're going to have a little bit of an edge because the the bookmakers ignore that and in general, the market somewhat ignores it. Of course, uh, to be honest with you, these days there's somebody that's from a college and they're a sports better. But either way, it's not going to move the lines as much as the Big Ten. But the problem with me is I'm a Badger. You know, I went to Wisconsin and uh, I watch Wisconsin games. And that means when I watch Wisconsin games, I care about them. And when I care about them, I care about who they're playing. And when I care about who they're playing, I know their players. <laughs> it all kind of filters together. And it's like, well, I'm a Big Ten specialist by default. To be honest with you, I probably should be a smaller conference specialist. Uh, but I watch the Big Ten, and I'm going to always watch Wisconsin games. I have a, a huge 6,000-member group on Facebook on uh, Wisconsin and Badger Fans for Life, it's called. I'm just, uh, I'm just completely committed to that. And just by doing that, I want to be a Big Ten specialist. And what I do say is if you specialize in something, you know, the ins and outs of these teams, you're going to know a little bit more about how the matchups are and how they apply to the line. And you can find a little bit more weakness rather than having to do a bunch of research. Sometimes when you're a specialist, you can see when the line's a little bit off without completely breaking it down and diving in because you might know why. You know, you might know if they've got a couple pro cornerbacks and pass rush on this team. You know, you might know if they're really good against the run and they're playing a rushing team that can't throw the ball. I mean, these are the matchup things that you want to get involved with. So um, being a big 10 Badger fan and uh, loving the big 10 is how I became that kind of a specialist. And I watch a lot of big 10 games in college basketball and in college football. I try to watch as much as possible. Sometimes I DVR and watch it again. Wow, a true fan. And when it comes to specializing, not always just finding a certain conference in a bigger market, but a whole market, if it's not too efficient, can also be a good way to go. And I'd like to use this as an opportunity to touch on your UFC betting as well. First off, could you just tell us how you got into that and how you would describe your overall approach to betting on the UFC? 
I've been betting on the UFC since Nunez was plus money. Um, I mean, hard betting. I, I made a few bets before that, but you know, I, I remember when she was fighting Misha Tate a long time ago, maybe 2016 or something, 17. I don't remember exactly. She was plus money, and I saw them stand next to each other. And I'm like, there ain't no way this chick's losing this girl. <laughs> she ended up beating the crap out, and then she then she was plus money against Ronda Rousey and beat her. Then uh, then they rematched, I believe, and. Plus money again. I just kept getting plus money. Well, these days she's like minus 1,000. You know, it's like massive favorites. But she did finally lose recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't, of course, bet on her because I quit betting on her probably when she was around the minus 300, minus 400. But she took off immediately after she finally beat Holly Holm and a couple of the other contenders. But I mean, the UFC has just been a, a sport that I enjoy a lot because it's more controlled by the fighters. If it doesn't go to decision, now the decisions can be bad. But the way I guess I look at it is like, hey, if I lost and I thought they should have won in the decision, I guess it wasn't convincing enough. So I I feel like there's a lot of outside adversity not affecting the wins or losses in this game. Bad football calls, pass interference, that has always been something I frown upon. Bad strikes, bad umpires, you know. Um, you can see a lot of that in baseball lately. <laughs> a lot of the complaints is look at Twitter. Angel Hernandez. Oh, Angel Hernandez. Everyone knows Angel Hernandez, Joe West, you know. I mean, it's just, it's just it affects the game. And um, I like the fact that they control their own destiny, especially if they finish the fight within the three or five rounds. So a sport I fell in love with. The only other sport that's really that controlled, I think, is like golf. You know, obviously golf, they control their own destiny, but golf is its own animal. But UFC is really who the toughest people are. And, you know, they're talking about Francis Nagano is going to fight. Uh, what's his face that just won? Um, uh, I can't, name escapes me, but the, the heavyweight champion. And Nagano is not going to be a favorite in boxing, but Nagano in real life would kick the absolute crap out of him because the UFC is a real life situation, right? You're fighting, you don't, you're kicking, you know, you're, you're on the ground. You're not just boxing with gloves. So uh, Tyson, right? Yeah. Tyson Fury. I don't know why his name escaped my head. Like everybody's talking about Tyson Fury right now, but um, you know it's just the same deal with McGregor. You know, obviously, if McGregor fought Mayweather in the ring, McGregor would have finished that pretty dang quickly. So UFC, in my opinion, is really about true fighting, and boxing has it has its own problems over the years. Lots of politics involved, and just the fact that um, they're wearing these massive gloves, it just it just kind of got boring to me. And the UFC has gotten really exciting and especially with COVID, then I got super heavy into it, betting it every weekend, and I did very well. And um, I think there's some of the loosest lines you can find in MMA. Used to be just UFC would be great, good enough, but now UFC's gotten a little bit sharper, but there's still a lot of prop bets you see winning by submission. I'll bet both sides on a fight. You know, I'll bet like um, – like somebody by submission on this fight, somebody by KO on the other side. So I'm betting both fighters, but I'm getting plus 300 on each side. So I'm fine. You know, it's like, as long as one of those fighters win like that, I'm in good shape. Well, this guy that submits people has 10 submissions and one KO. So he's going for submission. You know, it's a, it's a little bit better than um, when you're getting like plus 300 on those type of odds and you bet the other side because it's an even fight for the KO. And this guy doesn't know how to wrestle, but he's, 
great stand-up, you know, great technical fighter. So uh, I just got involved in that. And, um, you know, like uh, Islam Makachev, I've been betting him by submission uh, almost every fight. It's just, but you, you, the guy sitting there at minus 700 and he's plus 120 by submission. It's like, well, Islam submits, you know, duh. it's just an easy way to get a massive favorite uh, at plus money. So I think it's a weak market still. And uh, I, I enjoy the sport and I'm a fan of it. So thanks for asking about the UFC. I love it. I think one thing that you touched on near the end there, I was going to bring up, I mean, you compared UFC to golf in the sense that the athletes themselves largely control the outcome. But I think of a recent conversation I had with our mutual friend, Las Vegas, Chris, who referred to the UFC as the last inefficient market. And you outlined some ways in which it is still an inefficient market. So it seems like you'd agree with Chris on that front and your experience betting the UFC for people who hear this and might think, okay, there's a lot of opportunity. If they enjoy watching it even better then maybe they can, you know, get down on something that they'd be buying the pay-per-views for anyway. Is there any crossover skill set that you apply to UFC betting that you have taken with you from other sports? Absolutely. It's the value of the lines itself. Baseball is similar to that, right? Um, if you're betting minus 200, it's a 66% chance to win. You have to, you know, give a percentage of chance to win and you convert it to what the odds are supposed to be. You know, you do the calculation, you know, and by doing that, you know what the line's supposed to be and you can figure out if the juice is right or not. You know, the reason I don't bet really big favorites is because sometimes the juice is a little too much when you're minus 1400 and the other side is plus 700 even though it's a small percentage in between that it's still a big difference of what you're getting paid and what you're laying in this situation um ufc uh you know i tend to lean towards the dogs and i, I my my sweet spot's probably around the plus 180 and in that range if i can sniff out a good fighter usually i can find them uh paying pretty well and um a lot of times you have to understand when the grappling is going to take over and that's where the inefficient markets are. You know, the, the grappler wins in bigger rings. If the ring's bigger, they can't get to the cage and get up as quick. It's just all these little intricacies you think about. And I have a good time talking to Chris weekly about UFC. <laughs> I bet. Well, I think that there might be still plenty of meat on the bone when it comes to inefficiencies in the market. So I think you gave a good couple of nuggets there that people can start to take advantage of if they would like to do so. And Kev, as we start to round the corner a bit here, uh, we will certainly weave in the hops. So we're not going to sign off before we do that properly. But before we close the book on betting, um, something that came up recently, I think I sent you a few possible topics to discuss beforehand. And this might not have been one of them, but uh, I was surprised to see a Twitter thread that I put together last week take off a little bit when I asked people one thing they wish they knew when they started betting. And I had the thought of wishing I knew how to convert American odds to break even percentages because thinking in terms of probability is often to me the biggest factor that differentiates winners and losers in the long term in betting. And I thought of an example from the NFL draft where, you know, a guy like Trevor Penning was lined at minus 500 to go around one. And I knew that that was so much more valuable than a guy like Sam Howell to go in the top 10, paying back 20 to one. A lot of people see a 20 to one payout and think that's where the value must be because laying 500 to, you know, win a hundred back is really expensive, probably not worth it. But if you can think of those break-even probabilities, then I think you can put yourself in a pretty advantageous spot. So with that framework in mind, 
If I were to ask you one thing you wish that you knew when you started betting, what would you say? Wow. Uh, that's yeah, lots of things. <laughs> so many things. I, I mean, power ratings is a big thing that I wish I used. Um, um, I would say line value is something I didn't know. Uh, like I didn't care about, you know, I didn't care about the half points nearly as much as I did, especially over the key numbers. Um, I didn't, I didn't care about getting in the markets early. I didn't care about betting them late when, the movement finally pushes it past my betting threshold. And then I can ask why it happened and was it correct or not? And no, I'm going to fire. Now it did move past seven. You know, I, that stuff happens. I, I wish I would have known all that stuff. And yes, the conversion is funny. Um, You know, it's funny. I, when I first started converting lines, like um, minus 200, I, instead of going 200 over 300, I would go, I would go 200 plus 100, so take 100 over 300, then you're 33%. Then you take the inverse, 66%. Oh, that you get a 66% chance. Yeah, I did it like a long, crazy way, but much easier to do minus 110 over 210, right? <laughs> so it, it's just funny about the little things that I had to, bad habits I had to get uh, out of just because I kind of learned it by myself. I think doing math is uh, important and I have some articles at theoddsbreakers.com that explain the math. Um, Intro to Sports Betting 101 is about a 45-minute read that I wrote a long time ago, but it explains the math within the numbers in the NFL. It shows, it shows you everything about it. Um, I also show you how to uh, guarantee yourself a win for a cash bonus for a free bet. Um, the, there's a way to parlay it and bet the other side of the other two and guarantee money off it. I, there's a calculation that I use and it's a little bit of algebra and, you know, I wrote it out for people to check it out if they're interested in that Two very easy concepts right under bets and information at the oddsbreakers.com. So I wish I knew that more before I started betting, but, um, Hey, you know, that's it, the fun stuff that I love and I love talking to people about it and help people. Well, I think it's great that you're looking to pay it forward and educate some people who might be earlier on in that betting journey so that they can start to grasp these concepts and moving into a lane that might seem different altogether, but I think can be very complimentary. You talked about, you know, the math and, and having a, a pretty firm grasp of what I would consider like a pretty tactical piece of all this. On the other side of the spectrum, weaving in the Molinsky minute, Dave was so masterful of not just sports betting, but the lifestyle around sports betting. What would you say in your experience are some of the biggest lifestyle factors that could fuel one's success in the betting side of things, even if those lifestyle factors seemingly have nothing to do with betting itself? <laughs> Sitting in front of a computer all day? <laughs> we could probably talk about people that do that. And I'm unfortunately one of those a lot because you're always looking at the board and you're looking for lines that are moving and middle opportunities and you want to be first to information, you know, um, there's a ton of reasons why we're staring at our phone. And, and a lot of times it's like, uh, we're not just wasting time. We're looking for value, but that's why we're staring at our phones and our computers. Um, I, I say, don't get overwhelmed. Don't get burned out. Take a break. I mean, you're not going to get, you're not going to hit every line, but you know, you're also going to get lines that people don't get, you know, it's just, it, it's mental. It, there's a lot of psychology behind it. Um, I think that you have to know that you can't be too high and too low, Matt. Um, if you're too high, you're going to be too low. If you're celebrating because you won a big bet, then you're, that just shows your personality is going to be that more upset when you lose something you thought was a, almost a sure thing. It's, 
you have to remember that this is a drop in the bucket out of thousands of bets you're going to have in the future. Having a bad day is not going to matter. It's mental management is an important thing. I think that we need to take through this. And uh, you also have to realize that you put family first and some of your other things first and do this for either fun or investment or both. You know, I try to look at it as both an investment and fun. So, you know, remember where you're at and remember you can't control everything. And uh, um, best practice, just try to get the get your handicaps done early so you can get the lines early. Because if you're right, the line's going to move in your direction. I, I've never met a good handicapper that said, man, man, I never get that many, much line value, but I'm winning all the time. <laughs> you know, it's just like if you're getting line value, the chances are you're pretty good. So that's the important part of it. Very well said, and I would say that one of the other lifestyle components that Dave was very fond of would be a good bridge to weave in the hops to this conversation. Of course, all good things in moderation, you know, too much drinking probably never did anybody any good, but a little bit to take off the edge. And again, just enjoy life from time to time. Take a step back, give yourself a break, as you said, can be very valuable. And last week when we had a conversation about beer, on the Odds Breakers podcast, we talked about go-to beers. This week, I would like to ask a similar question, but to give it a fresh spin, let's maybe think about the Mount Rushmore of beers. So I'll turn it over to you to walk us through your top four beers. If you're creating your own Mount Rushmore, then I will gladly share some of my own thoughts as well. But to kick it off, Kiv, how would you describe your Mount Rushmore in the world of hops? Well, I'm really glad that you told me you're going to ask that because I took forever, like thinking about this earlier. I, I mean, like, I, because there's just so many out there that I enjoy, um, and there's what four heads on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> there's not. You got to pick out of uh, just all the beers I've enjoyed in my life. Really, um, there's I have to pick four best. Well, like I said when we did our show, I, I, I'm more of like a monthly change type person, you know, depending upon the time of year, but I did come up with four for now. And obviously things are subject to change. So I will uh, get started. And I'm also very excited to hear yours. Number one, I am going to go with a beer that I mentioned at least was Russian rivers, Pliny, the Eldar. I very much enjoyed it. Um, my friend that was uh, traveling, he was a neighbor of mine, unfortunately moved away, but he was always traveling back and forth from, uh, the San Francisco Bay area. And, uh, he, you know, he got me case and stuff. And then he got me some blind pig, which was also really good. And there's also Pliny the Youngar, which I still haven't had, but I plan on having that soon. And I'll have that delivered to me when next visit San Diego, but Pliny the Elder was just freaking delicious. It was, everything was perfect about it. It had some, you know, some pine taste to it. It, it, it was just one of the best. I was like, this is rated the number one beer. I have to find out why. Well, tasting it i found out why it won so many awards it's just absolutely amazing so that's number one number two i'm going to go with founders kbs it's a stout beer that comes out around thanksgiving it's just kind of perfect it tells you it tells me that the holidays are coming when you start drinking stout beers and dark beers you know it's just that kind of wintry taste coming in so there's some vanilla bean and some of it you know but the kbs is just done perfectly it's almost like a coffee in a way and I know that Founders has a coffee breakfast stout as well, but this KBS is just mixed so well. It just tastes like the holidays to me. And it's just, it's a feeling sometimes, Matt, when you drink a beer, you get a feeling with it, right? And 
and, and, I, and I get a good feeling of it. And it's just kind of perfect for that time. So it really sticks out to me how much I care about getting myself some KBS and uh, at that time of year. So I had to throw it on Mount Rushmore for now. Number three is a brewery in Minneapolis called Surly. And this beer was one of the best IPAs I've had. Todd the Axeman, it's called. And I believe the creator Todd played guitar. But um, it, it's like their West Coast style IPA. Um, it, it's got one malt. It's it, it's got citra and mosaic hops. It's just mixed together so splendidly. It's strong. It, it's delicious. Um, I was so impressed when I had it. And if you drink two of them, you better watch out. It's a it's a pretty strong beer. So I love Todd the X Man from Surly and I've been to Surly too. It's a wonderful brewery in Minneapolis. It's, you gotta go. It's, 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 there's an outdoor experience. They have all these fire pits coming out of the ground. If you want to sit close, it's wonderful. Number four, I have to go with old faithful and that is Loganita's IPA just straight up where it all started. I was fortunate enough to know the creator of Loganita's, the owner, Tony, because my wife went to school in Flagstaff at NAU with his niece and got very close to that family. So I've hung out with Tony a couple of times and I've drank with Tony a couple of times, real great guy. Eventually sold it for uh, nine figures, maybe 10 figures with the, the one B let's just say to uh, roll it. It was a Heineken or something. It was one of those Heineken. big distributor, but um, you know, he's living his life and enjoying himself, but he started this up there in Pentaluma. And uh, it, he's one of the originals, the one of the OGs. And, of course, they make the Waldos that's out right now. That's that extremely strong, uh, like, triple hop beer. But um, Lagunia's IPA is kind of where it started for me, of where I started loving IPA. So I have to put it on the Mount Rushmore beers, Matt. I love it. Three IPAs on the Mount Rushmore of beer on <laughs> brand for your Props and Hops debut and you also have a stout in the mix, as do I, to go with multiple IPAs. So some good overlap here, but no repeat beers, which I think is great, because hopefully we can collectively broaden everybody's horizons a little bit. So I'll kick it off. If I had to have one beer the rest of my life, it would be Julius, which is a New England IPA by Treehouse out in the Boston area. And that is just pretty much the fruit bouquet, citrus, peach, and mango but it still has plenty of hop presence to remind you that it's still a beer. And what I still remember from the first time I had this wasn't just the flavor and how well balanced it was, but a really soft mouthfeel, making it an IPA that even a lot of people who don't think they like IPAs could mm -hmm. still really enjoy. And with Julius, one thing I appreciate is that as a single IPA, you know, 6.8% ABV, it packs a punch, but it's not too heavy. So if there's just one beer the rest of my life, give me Julius by Treehouse. Wow. That said, if I were to only be able to have, let's say, one port or one can of beer for the rest of my life, I would probably go with a beer called Chow Chow Chow. It's a triple dry hopped, triple IPA, hence the you know triple use of the word chow in the name. <laughs> uh, yeah, Chow 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 by Monkish, which is just an IPA powerhouse out in my neck of the woods in the LA area. Huh. And I'll say that I got kind of like the Julius tasting notes on steroids with the citrus, plus a lot of pineapple for some more tropical vibes. 
And this one, if it makes sense, I would describe it as maybe a little bit brighter or less ripe, um, maybe a little bit fresher in a way, definitely a bigger body as well, clocking in at 10.2% ABV. And, you know, this one's not an easy find. I mean, Monkish has only made one batch of it that came late last year. So it's still fresh in my mind, how that flavor was just bursting out as soon as I opened the can, not even before I got it in a glass or held it up to my nose, but you just cracked the can at arm's length and it was just jumping out at you. I think it's the most mind-blowing experience I've had taking my first sip of a beer since that first time I had Julius. You're so making me clear. thirsty just talking about it, man. Is it spelled C-I-A-O? Chow, chow, yeah. chow? Yes, okay. C-I-A-O. Uh, I guess since it's a triple dry hopped, hazy triple IPA, they just did it three times. So chow, chow, chow by Monkish. All citra hops, which is my favorite. So when you talk about uh, Todd the Axeman with the citra mosaic, I love that combo as well. But yeah, chow, chow, chow by Monkish. If and when we see another batch of that, I'll have to see if I can get a can your way by any chance. Um, Wonderful. Just phenomenal. So a couple of hoppy beers naturally on the Mount Rushmore. And I'll also bring in a style that we haven't talked about yet and feature a sour. And my choice as being my Mount Rushmore. My favorite sour beer that I think I've ever had is called Veritas 19. It's a barrel-aged sour with raspberry by the Lost Abbey in the San Diego area. And Veritas is an ongoing series of sour beer that they do all barrel-aged, not all with raspberry. They just play around with, like, I think a similar base beer. And there's a similar concept that gets a unique twist with each batch. And Veritas 19 was just this raspberry barrel-aged sour that really knocked it out of the park to me. I feel like it was nice and approachable because it was probably more tart than sour, uh, so it's not too off-putting if somebody isn't familiar with that sour beer drinking experience. Also at 5.8% ABV, nothing too heavy, so still keeping things in the approachable realm. I think the raspberry really shines, but also tasting notes of vanilla and oak and a dry finish, probably thanks to some masterful barrel aging. I mean, Lost Abbey just really does a good job with their nod to the traditional Belgian-style sour beers. Uh, I, I think that Veritas 19, still in my book, the standard bearer for any raspberry sour that I've ever had. So I'll, I'll keep that top of mind. And then a brewery that I'll go to that you mentioned in our conversation last week, another San Diego brewery, Modern Times, makes a bourbon barrel aged imperial stout called Monster Tones. And it's, uh, again, I mean, this is the Mount Rushmore. So I'm going to say these are all phenomenal. I don't want to get too redundant with that word or, you know, dilute its meaning, but this, uh, another outstanding beer. Monster Tones is the stout that won me over on the style because I I love the smell of coffee. I always have. I, I just can't drink it. I don't know what it is. So whenever I see a stout, I, I tend to be a little skeptical, less so these days, thanks to Monster Tones, because it had some of those coffee undertones without being too roasty. And instead, what I really got a lot of was, you know, bourbon, really good barrel character. So a, a lot of, you know, a, a little boozy, but also some coconut, chocolate, vanilla, maple notes. It's just so many wonderful flavors coming together. It could probably be easy to take this overboard or to mess it up with, you know, too much maple or chocolate or vanilla, making it seem too yeah. sweet. But that that with the roastiness just really plays together beautifully. And this is a decadent beer, 13% ABV, but I, I think it's just basically ecstasy in a glass. So I'll go with Julius by Treehouse, Chow 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 by Monkish, Veritas 19 by The Lost Abbey, and Monster Tones by Modern Times is the Mount Rushmore on my end. I think if we can make two Mount Rushmores in these eight beers between the two of us, 
that would be quite the lineup. It would probably take a, a good weekend and then some to get through them all. But uh, I, I think you chose quite wisely there. Oh, you did too. And you, you, you went off the grid a little bit, you know, some, some of these that people haven't heard as much, obviously modern times a little bit more popular, but I love it, man. I almost said a sour beer. I almost said uh, sour monkey from victory, which is a sour triple at 9.5 ABV. Um, they actually got number 14 in some uh, rating here uh, from good housekeeping. Actually, not sure if you want to trust good housekeeping, but Hey, they, they, they at least rated that beer and that's a beer I like to drink. Um, I wanted to mention that Ballast Point has fantastic beers. There's a mango one that I absolutely love during the summer when I go visit San Diego. Uh, I don't even like watermelon beers that much, but they do have a good watermelon one. So, uh, and obviously the uh, Sculpin Grapefruit IPA is fantastic. I mean, we can go forever. <laughs> but I wanted to mention Ballast Point because the Victory at Sea uh, Stout too. Holy cow, that's a... That's a punch. Yeah. Yeah. They've got some legendary ones for sure. Well, I hope, I mean, you've alluded to it uh, sometimes coming out to San Diego for vacation. Um, I know I was just out near your neck of the woods, not able to make anything work this time. But if I'm out there again, maybe for spring training, or if you're out this way, I would love to get together for a beer or five. So we'll just have to yeah. make sure that we make that happen sooner rather than later. But Kev, before we wrap this up officially, I want to be sure to plug your work so people can know where they can find you and keep up with what you're doing if they're not doing so already on Twitter at the Oddsbreakers. Of course, also the Oddsbreakers podcast, theoddsbreakers.com. Is there anything I'm missing or anything else you'd like to add? No, no. If people want to check us out, we have plenty of stuff that we put out just because we love sports betting. Everyone's got puts out great plays and not everybody needs to be a premium with us. Some people bet smaller amounts and, it just doesn't matter. We just love sports betting. We try to teach it. Sports wagering, sports wagering University is a, a venture I'm checking out, which we're trying to educate people of how to beat the books because we, we we don't like competing against each other. We're friends. We, we want to beat the books here. You know, we, we want to teach people best practices, and that's what it's all about, the odds breakers and SWU. So, yeah, check us out. I'm at OB Kiev or at the odds breakers. I actually use the odds breakers Twitter a little bit more. A um, little bit of social media management there, not much. I just enjoy myself betting. And if you love betting, you'll probably like the Ozbreakers. Absolutely. I think it's hard not to pick up on how much fun and joy is behind all this on your end as well. I think we could all use more of that in this space. So, Kev, it's been a blast connecting. Thank you once again for returning the favor and hopping on Props and Hops. I, hey, thank you so much. It was an honor to do your show, Matt. Goodbye. Thanks again to Kiev, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed our conversation, the number one way you can support Props and Hops is to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you'd be interested in more podcasts to inform your betting approach after the NFL Draft, I'd encourage you to check out the Dimers Podcast Network at dimers.com podcasts. All right, that'll do it for this episode. I'll talk to you again next week with a fresh perspective, featuring a special guest who's leading the industry from the other side of the counter. Until then, thanks as always for listening, best of luck with your NFL draft bets, and cheers! Ups and ups and